Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, we're discussing SST 243. The No Man is Roger Miller Win Instantly LP. Very cool to get into this record. We've heard nothing like it before, and we've got a special guest. You bet we've got Roger Clark Miller on the show. Yeah, very cool to have Roger on and tell us exactly what was going on. It's a very different record and a very cool record. I mean, I I listened to this one a long time ago. It was just awesome to get back into it this week. Yeah. Now, one thing I wanted to mention before we get into Spiel's brand is uh, I just wanted to note how much people have been uh, responding to the last few episodes that we've had, like Mofungo and Pellmel. And I was just thinking about how, you know, these are not the ultra-famous SST bands, but people are really enjoying getting into them. And you and I talk about, or we joke about, how we would do this show even if no one actually listened to it. And there's some truth to that. There definitely is. <laughs> but it's really rewarding for us to get that feedback from our listeners. But I also wanted to note that the actual musicians themselves get a lot out of that. I've I've noticed or you've mentioned to me about how the artists that we're covering, again, mostly I would say the lesser known ones, and more recently, certainly in uh, in the new year here, 2023, the artists are really kind of recognizing, you know, hey, you know, we did something. This stuff is meaningful to people. People listen to it. People still like us. So I just wanted to mention that it's really, really rewarding to see how rewarding it is for the artists when we highlight them. So I just wanted to note that. Yeah, well, the, one of the cool things for me is it sometimes gets band members talking when they haven't spoken for a while just because, you know, whatever reason they lost touch with each other. Yeah, it's very cool. And we're going to be having all of those reunion gigs. So cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, one other thing, too, that kind of spurred out of that is uh, I want to put you on the spot about an awesome idea that you had. I think it was kind of staring us in the face all along, but it relates to these uh, these catalog numbers that we're going to have coming up where there's no actual SST release. You had a great idea. Well, I can't take full credit for it, Ryan. I, I think Michael T. Fournier uh, actually tossed it out there as well, but we're thinking about maybe getting into some crews or New Alliance for some of those episodes. Yeah, I think that that's a great idea. We should definitely do it. I'd be interested to hear from our listeners who they'd like us to focus in on. You know, do an episode on Chemical People, do an episode on other Greg Ginn solo releases. Um, it's actually going to be hard to pick, but I think that's a great idea. It'll help you get over this mental block with respect to these empty catalog numbers. I will note, though, that it does essentially acknowledge, though, that we won't or we would not plan to do like a full New Alliance and Cruise series of episodes afterwards. We would just kind of combo bands. But I think that's a great way to highlight some SST-adjacent bands that uh, really deserve a spotlight or deserve a focus, just like some of these other lesser-known bands that I've been talking about. Yeah, no, I don't think we're going to do a, you know, a, f a full series on Cruise or New Alliance, but like we're doing now, but you, the story of Cruz and New Alliance is so intertwined with SST that it's it's part of the SST story for sure. Yeah, yeah. And so we'll actually have, I believe, some of those, or maybe even the first one or two this year, perhaps. Yeah, so no, we definitely th will. 
Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that'll be really cool. I can't wait for you to tell me which one we're doing. I already have it all mapped out. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. Okay, well, uh, I only have two micro spiels before I kick it over to you. And it's just to note a couple of new things that I caught. Another new book out that I want to get, and I bet you, you want to get. It's called The Inner Ear of Don Ziantara, a half century of recording in one of America's most innovative studios through the voices of musicians. Mm. This is coming out in June on Akashic Books. Definitely one that you need to get and read for sure. I didn't know that existed, but that's cool. Some yeah. some great material for the end on end guys to probably pull from for their show. I bet, yeah. Um, and then one other release I saw recently on the SS tree. I did not pop on it though because it was so expensive, but it looked really cool. I'm I'm uh, I'm sad I missed out on it. But the Folk Implosion released a four side. They're calling it a four sided lathe cut record on Joyful Noise. It's a triple spindled. 10 inch limited to 163 copies it was like around a hundred dollars us plus wow. shipping of course i want it but not for that much it's called it just goes with it sounds cool like i would i'd love to have it maybe those tracks will end up on their full length that they are uh, cooking up hopefully but it's another one that for the record needs to be mentioned on the ss tree the folk implosion four-sided lathe cut 10 inch wow yeah, that's just crazy. But that's all I got, man. We've got a ton to get into Roger Miller, so I'm going light on the spiels this week. Okay, well, I'll try and breeze through my spiel. It's my, I'm just, I'm still going. We're on to the E section, Ryan, of my latest digestions, I latest guess. Latest digestions. I am excited to hear all about them. Eager, maybe? Exactly. <laughs> all right, well, here we go. Empire, expensive sound. Uh, speaking of DC, yeah, this originally came out in 1981, but I'm talking the 2003 reissue with unreleased tracks and some live stuff. They were an offshoot of Generation X, but apparently a huge influence on Fugazi and the DC bands, which you can definitely hear in the melodies and the groove and the guitar playing on some songs, especially on the title track expensive sound we know like the early dc scene was really into the british bands like the damned and, and stuff like that way more than some of the other early hardcore bands that you hear about yeah i've read about that i mean i have this record but i've read about the influence in dc from both ian and henry and my recollection is that it was you know in it was cheap it was available and it was cheap and it's because you saw it in cutout bins or in discount bins a lot of musicians in the area picked it up and just absorbed it and it ended up being as i understand it one of those records that ended up kind of informing that post hardcore revolution summer sound as well this empire record yeah it's just weird what little pockets were into you know dc was into a lot of Stuff like that, like the British bands, Generation X, The Ruts, Empire, The Damned. Um, the LA guys were more into the local first wave stuff, I think, like Germs, X, Weirdos, Screamers, and classic rock. Well, I guess Henry and Ian talk about being into Ted Nugent and stuff like that, pre-punk. Okay, uh, speaking of early hardcore, The Effigies, Forever Grounded, 1984, Enigma 
one of the first and best of the early Chicago hardcore bands. This album is so good. It's like DOA from this era in the sense that they were good players, weren't afraid to show their classic rock roots, maybe. I think the effigies are pretty underrated. Like, they get credit only in the context of Chicago. True. I think, you know, because they were one of the early Chicago bands. To me, they were one of the better bands to come out of hardcore, and all their singles and albums are are good. Yeah, I would agree. I've always lumped them in together with Naked Ray Gun and then Peg Boy. I kind of always group those three bands together in terms of my love for that era, those musicians. Yeah. Okay, Earth Crisis, Destroy the Machine, 1995. Their de- debut full-length on Victory. I've, ta- I've talked before about how this kind of hardcore or metalcore or whatever you want to call it kind of passed me by in the early to mid nineties, just not where I was at musically. Uh, but I can rock to it now and see what the, the appeal would have been. I think if I would have been just a little bit younger or been still in high school when this came out, I probably would have been all over this. Yeah. Yeah. That was a big record when it came out for me. Yeah. Okay. Esplendor Geometrico. Chic Aljama. This is a Spanish industrial band with an insane output, like 30 plus albums. This one came out in 1991 on Belgian industrial label Daft Records, more recently reissued on Spanish experimental label Geometric. Pretty wild stuff. It's not based around hard rhythms, like um, dance rhythms or something, like some 80s industrial you know, like Front 242 and those kinds of bands or Skinny Puppy. It's not metal, like later industrial that came out after Ministry got got so big. It's more noisy and what I would consider pure industrial, like Throbbing Gristle or Neubotten. Roger actually mentions them in the interview. Yeah, well, they get mentioned lots in, in reviews of Roger's stuff yep. as well. Yep, exactly. Okay, Electro Quarterstaff. The album's called Gretzky 2006 Candlelight Records. Their first of two records, Insane Math, Prog, Metal. Uh, They were from Winnipeg. I saw them at least once, maybe twice. Um, If you're into stuff like dysrhythmia or math rock that leans in the metal direction, you'll probably like this. Hmm. I have never heard of them. How did I miss them? I don't know. Did they come through town when we lived in the same city? They for sure did. Yeah, I missed it. Might be too metal for you. Possibly. Elvez, Gracias Land, 1994, Sympathy for the Record Industry. The title and artwork to this album are a play on Paul Simon's Graceland. Elvez is Robert Lopez of the Zeros. This is his first of many albums. It's cool, tongue-in-cheek, not all of it, but some of it is, uh, like parodies and stuff. I, I guess he's supposed to be the Mexican Elvis. He does a cool version of Mexican radio on this one. Uh can't wait for the Zeros documentary. And this one comes with a podcast shout out. He was recently on Pleasant Game and super cool podcast, The Devil's Music. And it's a great chat. Pleasant is a legend in her own right and has lots of cool friends, you know, like people like Chip Kinman, Jane Wheedlin, uh, Xavier Escovito, Paul Rubens was on her show, Kid Congo, tons more. It's a great podcast that I always check out. She's usually friends with the guests and they generally have a a shared history. So it's always like two old friends catching up. Oh yeah. Hey, I want to see that Paul Rubens documentary too. Um, 
was Elvez in that other Zeros related band, True Believers or True Believer? What's that? What's the name of that band? I'm thinking True Believers. Yeah, I don't think so. They're kind of roots rock, right? I think that's just Alejandro. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I never dug into them. How was that record? Oh, I love it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If you listen to the Pleasance interview with uh, Elvez, she tells a hilarious story about um, Alex Chilton. Oh, too. well, yeah. there are ma- there are many. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Okay, uh, the embarrassment. God help us. Nineteen ninety. Bar awesome. none. Yeah. Yes. 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 Formed in Wichita, Kansas in 1979, split up in 83. Members would go on to form the Del Fuegos, Big Dipper. Mm-hmm. Uh, they probably got on my radar while researching for Volcano Suns. Yep. They're somewhat associated with Volcano Suns. They only released a single and an EP or two during their initial run, all of which is collected on the Heyday comp. Um, this record, God Help Us, is from one of their many reunion phases. It's kind of their debut full-length, early indie rock, but they kind of stand apart. Almost reminds me of some of the stuff you hear on K Records or Flying Nun. Lo-fi and garagey, but not in a garage rock, rock way. Maybe more of a modern lover's trip. It's good. More jangly yeah. at, at times. Yeah, no, it's awesome. Exit Condition, Days of Wild Skies, 1990, Meantime Records, UK band, active 87 to 95. Although this was their only album, there's also a couple of great comps on Boss Tunage, including one with demos and singles. It's melodic hardcore of the Dag Nasty variety, a bit new windy. Do you know Exit Condition, Ryan? I don't. I don't. I sounds like I should. You definitely should. Really good. Kind of surprised they don't come up more, actually. It, maybe about five years ahead of their time when you listen to this. Yeah. Egrets on Ergo. And the album I'm going to butcher, it's Surfeet of Gemulich. Looks like, it looks like German. There's Motley Crue dots in the title. 2017 Cleopatra Records. I think maybe I came to this because Crow Jane is the guitarist. And she's associated with Paul Rossler, who produced this at Kitten Robot and also plays on it. It's gothy, weird, post-punk, death rock with some skronken sax in the mix. It's really good. Um, you should check it out. What's it called? The band's called Egrets on Ergo, E-R-G-O-T. And the the album title? I'm not saying it again. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, uh, just rounding it up, Ryan, relating dudes to jazz. Eddie Harris, Smokin', 1970, Janus Records. Eddie Harris was a jazz and funk saxophonist who pioneered the use of amplified saxes. He didn't really do the fusion thing that others were into around this era. He kind of went into more of a funk R&B direction on albums like Is It In? Uh, Sampled a ton. This album is is more from the hard bop school of jazz. He looks so badass on the cover. Like there's smoking coming out of his sax. And uh, he's sitting cross-legged in this dark room, but he's wearing shades. And there's kind of like Moroccan throw pillows. It looks like an opium den or something. And his shirt's off, but he's wearing a leather vest. Whoa. Yeah. By the way, that should be filed under H, not under E, right. but we'll we'll let that go. Yep. All right. That's all I have, Ryan. Okay, Brant. Well, let's win instantly. History lesson, part one. All right. So where to begin with Roger Miller? He really is one of those artists where it's super overwhelming. <laughs> Tell Just me to about pro- it. <laughs> yeah, to provide a history lesson on. It, but it's also like really impressive because Roger is such a prolific artist. 
in so many forms of media too, like not just as a musician, right? It's so hard interviewing people like Roger because it's just daunting. It's like... Yeah. It reminded me of when we've explored Henry Kaiser or Elliot Sharp, for example. Yeah. Like very, very similar, overwhelming and impressive body of work. Now, we all know Roger is still mostly known for his work with Mission of Burma, which we also talked about on episode 210, speaking of the Volcano Suns, where we covered the Farst LP, and we provided a detailed review of Mission of Burma with uh, Peter Prescott as our guest as well. But let's get into Roger Clark Miller. Some of this that I'll cover is in the interview, but let's just set the stage for those who maybe haven't uh, really explored his solo work or his other combos besides Mission of Burma. Roger's originally from Ann Arbor, Michigan. He started on piano and eventually picked up the guitar. And uh, very early on, he started forming bands like the Freak Trio and the Sky High Purple Band and eventually Sproton Layer with his brothers Ben and Larry. And in that combo, Roger was actually on bass. They made some recordings in 1970 and eventually had two releases on New Alliance Records in the 90s. The With Magnetic Fields Disrupted 12-inch, that's New Alliance Records 55 from 1991. That was actually re-released in 2011 on World in Sound Records. And it's actually going to be re-released this year again with extra tracks on Third Man Records. Oh, cool. Yeah. But those yep. are recordings from the 70s. From 1970, yeah. Yep. So those are from the 70s uh, with his brothers. Uh, there's also the Lost Behind Words single on New Alliance. That's New Alliance Records 802 from 1991. And uh, there's this excellent quote on the back of the Sproton Layer LP by this guy, Stan Rebo. Check this out. Just to give a sense of what Sproton Layer was like. And, and Roger talks a bit about this too, but it really does set the stage. Here's Stan. As I recall, Sproton Layer was perhaps best respected for their ability to play a set of free-form, off-the-cuff improvisations after two sets of original material. Their songs ranged from abridged pop structures to ritualistic drones of semi-symphonic excursions and on to the anywhere beyond, not unlike a conglomeration of the bands and records they enjoyed the most. Sid Barrett's Pink Floyd, The Silver Apples, Soft Machine, SRC, Captain Beefheart, Pretties for You, Strange Days, and Kick Out the Jams. So that gives you a sense of, you know, one of Roger's first bands. Kind of reminds me of that Canadian band, Simply Saucer, actually. Yep. I don't, I don't know if you made that connection yourself, but... Yeah, no, I can see that for sure. Yeah. So after a pit stop at CalArts, Roger eventually found his way to Boston to be a piano tuner where he became a member of the band The Moving Parts, where Roger played guitar and future Mission of Burma bandmate Clint Conley was on bass. You can get a collected recordings of The Moving Parts on the comp Wrong Conclusion on Arf Arf Records from 1992. That's on CD. And I don't know if you've taken a look at Arf Arf Records. It's an insane rabbit hole to go down. Also, if you have the time, uh, ran by Eric Lindgren, from the moving parts and eventually Eric was in Bird Songs of the Mesozoic who we'll touch on in a moment but check out Arf Arf Records wow there's some crazy stuff there uh, Roger eventually co-founded Mission of Burma with Clint and Peter Prescott in 1979 
with now classic recordings on Ace of Hearts and Tang. Mission of Burma disbanded in 83, at least in part due to Rogers' tinnitus, which is well documented. It's mentioned in the interview and also in books like Michael Azarad's Our Band Could Be Your Life, where there's an entire chapter dedicated to Mission of Burma. Did you, in your research, or maybe you knew this before you started researching it, did you see anything about a documentary specifically about Roger? No. Is there one? Uh, well, I saw a reference to one uh, on IMDb. I went, I was on there looking at his his soundtrack work. Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. It, it mentions a a, uh, a documentary that sounds like it's kind of about his hearing loss, maybe? No, I haven't seen that. I'll yeah, I, I couldn't find anything else about it anywhere. Nothing on YouTube? No. Like a pro- promo clip or Vimeo? No, I couldn't find anything. Yeah, sometimes when there's like a weird, obscure mention, you can find it on YouTube or Vimeo, but nothing, hey? Yeah. But yeah, uh, if you want to understand that story a bit better, definitely check out Michael Azarad's book. In the early 2000s, of course, Burma reformed and released four amazing albums 20 years after they disbanded, which is covered in the excellent documentary, Not a Photograph, The Mission of Burma Story on MVD. And that also gives you a sense of, you know, how Mission of Burma disbanded originally as well. And don't forget, of course, that Burma backed Dreadful in Dreadful and the Din. They were actually the Din, who we also discussed on the Volcano Suns Forest episode. But also when Brant blew my mind clean off and had John Corbett on the show for the Brian Ritchie Sunraw Man from Outer Space episode where John spieled about how his label, Corbett versus Dempsey, released the Dreadful and the Din CD last year called Songs in Heat 1982. So, Brant, can you see now? It's all connected. It's, it's all, all connected. It's all connected, right? Yep. Okay, so Burma disbanded in 83, and Roger's focus shifted to bird songs of the Mesozoic. Roger explains kind of how that came to be in the interview. This is an instro band focused on keyboard, together eventually with Martin Swope, Eric Lindgren, and also Rick Scott on keys, who was a former member of Miller's prior Ann Arbor band, The Red Ants. Bird Songs put out a ton of records from 84 to 2006-ish, first on Ace of Hearts, then many on the Cuneiform label. Roger actually left Bird Songs in 87 to focus on his Maximum Electric Piano Project, a collaboration with Russ Smith and others, as again you'll hear in the interview. Now where did Maximum Electric Piano come from? In 1983, Roger acquired an electro-harmonics 16-second digital delay and hooked it up to his Yamaha CP70 electric baby grand piano. And with some prepared piano techniques, Roger had a brand new instrument and some new inspiration. So what is prepared piano? We've talked about prepared guitar before on the show, where you will you know, weave objects between the strings or use the guitar as a percussive instrument? Well, that's essentially what we're talking about here, where Roger could play directly on the strings of the Yamaha CP70, also using bolts or alligator clips on strings to create drones, and then also using guitar pedals and looping. So that's, you know, the maximum electric piano. Now, here is a a quote from the Roger Miller No Man Is Hurting Me, Ace of Hearts press kit that describes the Maximum Electric Piano. And and that's the version, if I can call it that, of Roger Miller that we get on this Win Instantly record. Here's 
from the Ace of Hearts press kit. Maximum Electric Piano is Roger's solo concert format. He uses a variety of electronic and tone-altering devices with his Electric Baby Grand Piano. This includes digital loops, which allow him to sound like up to six musicians at once. Incorporating vocals, something he has not done since Mission of Burma, has helped make this format acceptable in rock clubs as well as art venues. It's an updated one-man band. A one-man band that sounds like six musicians at once, of course. <laughs> yep. And the Win Instantly record is not his first Maximum Electric Piano release. In 1986, there is this Ace of Hearts record, No Man Is Hurting Me, that I just mentioned. In 87, there's the Groping Hands EP. And also in 87, the Big Industry LP. All three of those are on Ace of Hearts. In uh, 1988, Roger released the O album. It's actually called O, Guitars, etc., kind of a return to guitars but still just as avant-garde as some of this maximum electric piano stuff that one's on forced exposure and then we get to this album the one we're covering on the episode here which we'll talk a bit more about in a moment so before we turn to this record we have to note some of roger's other works because again we're focusing more on this episode on maximum electric piano and you have got a spiel on Steve Stain after the interview, so don't forget about that. But here are the No Man records. There's 1989's Damage the Enemy. That's New Alliance 43. There's uh, 1990's Waman Express. That's SST 267. 1991's How the West Was Won. That's SST 281. There's the Xylel and a Woman in Half soundtrack, 1990. That's New Alliance 51. There's the M3 Proj, that's Roger with his two brothers, Ben and Larry. That's New Alliance 57 from 1993. And then a whole bunch of other ones on SST. There's 1994's Roger Miller's Exquisite Corpse Unfold record, SST 307. 95's Elemental Guitar, SST 318. 96's The Benevolent Disruptive Ray, SST 331. Roger Miller with Larry Dirsch, The Binary System, live at the idea room that's sst 349 so what what struck me when i was digging into this and kind of looking at all the releases on new alliance and sst is roger has a really unique latter period relationship with sst that we saw with similar types of experimental avant-garde musicians like Henry Kaiser and Elliot Sharp for the preceding 3 or 4 years so yeah. interesting to see roger kind of carry the torch for this type of music on SST and New Alliance. Yeah, totally. Now, again, after these SST releases, I mentioned that there are those Mission of Burma reunion records on Matador from 2004 to 2012. And again, let's just marvel at the fact that over 20 years later, Mission of Burma reformed and put out a string of albums that, for me, have just as much impact as the original Mission of Burma. They hold up as classics to me by now. Like, they are part of the Mission of Burma Canada. It's not like, oh, I prefer the earlier albums. They all stand up. Big time. That, yeah, that's On Off On from 04. The Obliterati from 06. That's probably my favorite. Mine too. Yeah, The Sound, The Speed, The Light from 09. All three of those are on Matador. And then finally, the Unsound record on Fire Records. And it's a, a few years after that that I saw Mission of Burma live, and wow, that was amazing. 
Most recently, of course, Roger has had a number of other projects, one being Trinary System. The Amplify, the Amplifiers single came out on Funworld in 2015, that's 7-inch. And Lights at the Center of Your Head, that's from uh, 2019 on Feeding Tube Records. In 2021, we mentioned last year on the show, actually, the Fourth World Quartet, 1975, was released on Cuneiform. Um, that's another combo with Roger and his brothers, Ben and Larry, with saxophonist Jack Waterstone. Last year, of course, and this is mentioned in the interview, Roger released eight dream interpretations for solo electric guitar ensemble. This is also on Cuneiform. Um, and we mentioned it last year and just talking about, you know, hey, there's this new proj by, by Roger. Check it out, you know. And it is getting really, really good reviews. And he describes it as kind of maximum electric piano, but for guitar. Yeah, you can hear that on the Cuneiform Bandcamp. It's really cool. Yeah, um, I mentioned that this year there's going to be a Sproton Layer reissue and comp on Third Man. It looks to be a double LP. And then finally, hopefully this year, we'll get that new Trinary System LP. So Roger has had, you know, over 50 albums. And I'm really, really just high grading it here. There's no way to get into all of this deeply. It also is worth mentioning, and check out his website too. You can you can go for days on his website and some of the content there. Yeah. Rod, Roger is also a visual artist, a writer, a lecturer, also does soundtrack work. And so, you know, I've really, I've missed a ton, but trying to kind of set the stage because, you know, we've got to start somewhere. Now, we're starting off with this Win Instantly record of his early Maximum Electric Piano records. You could argue it's maybe one of the more accessible ones. But good news is for um, everyone, you can listen to this. It's up on Bandcamp. And really, this is a project between Roger and Russ Smith. You talk a bit about, you know, Russ Smith and the sonic percolator in the interview. But he was ended up being kind of a, a technician for this project and uh, essentially a full member of the band. And then there are a number of guests on this record, which we'll talk about when we uh, get further into the record. Hey, Ryan, let's throw it over to Roger. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Roger Miller. Roger, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure, Brad. Okay, I want to go all the way back to the start with you. You grew up in Ann Arbor? Yeah, I grew up in Ann Arbor. Uh, my dad was a professor. He, he studied fish. Yep. So uh, it's slightly odd. We'd go out to the... He studied fish that live in the deserts of the western U.S., Mexico and Guatemala. So we would spend every summer out there collecting fish and then also fossil hunting and comparing the current ones to the fossils. Wow. So that's what I did from two to 18 every summer. So I honestly think that affected uh, my world outlook quite a bit. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, what was your first instrument? Was it piano? Yeah. Piano lessons at age six. My dad played piano. He was a pretty good piano player for a while until ichthyology uh, dominated his life. Mm-hmm. And Ben and Larry are both younger than you. Yeah, they're twins, and they're two years younger than me. And we all kind of we all loved music when we were, you know. I just thought piano was fun; it was just something fun to do. But in sixth grade, the Beatles hit, right. and it literally I was one of those people. There's there's millions of them that before I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, I was just a kid that you know climbed trees and ran around. And afterwards, in that 
first two and a half minutes of a song, I was a rocker. Like after that, <laughs> the rest of my life, I was a rocker. Like, why am I playing piano when I should be playing guitar? <laughs> so that's when the switch happened. Oh, big time switch! And then you really got me. Came out, and you know, you heard the, you heard Ray and Dave moaning and screaming, and then that insane guitar solo. And it's like, man, this is the future. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what? I, what came first, the Sky High Purple Band or the Freak Trio? Uh, Sky High Purple Band. Uh, that was in ninth grade. It was the spring of ninth grade. Me and my brothers all played guitar, and there were a lot of guitarists in the house, and they had, a drummer was over, but they it was just kind of loose, jammy stuff. And I said, wow, we could actually form a band. <laughs> and, so, and then I go, well, what do we need? Everybody's a guitarist, so I'll play bass. Uh, so that's how I was a bass player for the first 10 years of my existence as a mm -hmm. musician, primarily a bass player. I was also a guitarist, primarily a bass player. And uh, yeah, with my, with my two brothers and then a really good guitar player and a drummer that was their, their friends mostly. Yeah, and we had this guy, Purple Band. We like, you know, played Yardbirds, 13th Floor Elevators, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Stones, Kinks. Mm -hmm. that, that, was, that was ninth grade. And going into 10th grade uh and that was the summer of love also so you know i i went down i grew up in ann arbor and i saw the grateful dead at the first i guess you'd call it love and we just called it a free concert right the very first concert the band show and at that time i thought the grateful dead was a very interesting band mm -hmm. my opinion changed over the years but uh and uh anyways so that's did you ever see the stooges uh yeah i saw them twice uh I saw them in the summer of 69. I'm pretty sure that's what it was. Uh, and that was uh, their album release show, their first album release show at uh, the East Town Theater. And they were super tight. Yeah. Like they were, they were a professional band. You know, just the, the band just kicked ass. You know, the Ashton Brothers and uh, David. And they're pretty, you know, totally rock solid. And Iggy was just an incredible performer and dancer. Yeah. You know, excellent. And then I saw them again, I guess it was January 1970. Uh, Sprott and Lair was supposed to open up for them. Oh. But but we, for some reason, we couldn't do it. Uh, I think my brother Lair was sick. And uh, for that show, it was a benefit. It was nothing but a wall of feedback and Iggy assaulting the audience. <laughs> so... And I remember the next day in high school, like it was, it was as if it was like a rite of spring moment, like major arguments, like <laughs> was this good or was it bad? And I was on the side, but yeah, that was really pretty amazing, <laughs> even though it wasn't very musical. Yeah, the Stooges legend has obviously grown into what it is now. But back then, like, were you and your friends in high school were you talking about the Stooges? Like, you know, especially considering they're a, a hometown band. Well, you know, we had the first album, only the first album that come out fall, the next fall. Uh, and, you know, I played I Want to Be Your Dog. I, I was in the band that played the high school dance, and we did I Want to Be Your Dog. Yeah. I mean, I consider them kind of, in a way, not very high res as musicians. You know, like, the riffs were, like, incredibly simple. And I was already into, a, like, you know, Electric Ladyland and Third Stone from the Sun and the first country Joe and the fish album. So my growing up with classical music and avant-garde, you know, like Stockhausen and stuff, 
had a slight humorous take on the Stooges, but you know, I liked them. I saw them twice. You know, <laughs> yes. Like, and I, and the two shows I saw were like the polar opposites. One was completely <laughs> professional, and the other was complete anarchy. So I, I saw the extremes between two. You mentioned some of the avant-garde stuff. Um, yeah. That's an influence, obviously, on your, you know, the stuff that we're going to be getting to right away here. But what, how did you get into that? My dad, who, you know, he played piano. He liked, you know, he played Chopin and Beethoven and that kind of stuff when he was in college, which was, you know, considerably before my time. And uh, he actually, I actually have like a little, a little award that he got because he was the best piano player at his college. But, you know, you can't make a career being a classical piano player unless you're in career probably lucky right and uh but he always liked music and we would go we would go to see concerts with him and he heard like the psychedelic stuff that we we're listening to like uh saucer full of secrets you know first soft machine country joe and the fish even you know crazy world of arthur brown is actually for all its histrionic absurdity it's a pretty amazing record yep uh, and he heard that stuff he had you know you would probably like the university of michigan contemporary directions concerts and that was where they played new music you know Penderecki I'm pretty sure I saw Terry Riley's in C I didn't know what it was at the time because the album hadn't come out but now that I look back I realized that's what it was mm -hmm. uh, and you know Stockhausen and I probably saw some Verez so to me and my brothers, you know, I mean, we lived in this just amazing place, Ann Arbor in the peak of the hippie era. Yeah. And we'd see the MC5 in the afternoon. And then at night, some, sometimes literally this would happen. We'd see the MC5 in the afternoon. And at night, we'd go here, Stockhausen and Penderecki. And, and, you know, it all just merged into one idea. Yeah. That's cool that your dad made that connection. Yeah, he was very supportive. My parents came and saw Mission of Burma, uh, the Second Chance, and, uh, and my, yeah, my dad loved all. He would come see bird songs on Mesozoic Maximum Electric Piano because I was a piano player, which he had to stop. So I think I continued something that he wanted to do. So I think he liked that. Right. You mentioned Sprout and Layer. I know you weren't together that long. Um, any memorable shows that stand out in your mind? There's about three of them. By 19, we started in spring 1969, and by 1970, we'd actually gotten pretty good. We had a really diverse repertoire. We could play two sets of original music, almost all written by me. You know, I, I was just so excited, and I thought, God, I've finally found my tr my truth. Uh, we played my favorite show that we ever played. It was in January of 1970. We played for a friend of mine who, who they lived in a frat house but it wasn't really a frat house. It was like a hippie house. <laughs> and we played two sets of our originals and then everybody got snowed and we just played a set of free form improvisations. And we'd take time between them, discuss the next piece. And, uh, and everyone was just stoned and totally dug it, you know? Yeah. So that was kind of our ideal show. We played two sets of, you know, kind of crazy, but tightly constrict, tightly composed, and rocking shit, and then we do a freeform improv thing, which was you know more akin to like Starship or Interstellar Overdrive. Right. The two gigs we played that were kind of high profile, we opened up for Colonel Kitchen, which had uh, Scott, sorry, Steve McKay, the sax player, played on Fun House. Mm -hmm. Colonel Kitchen was a free jazz group, 
in Ann Arbor and we played, opened up for them one time, which I thought was pretty cool because mm -hmm. I liked that. And we opened up for Commander Cody and the Lost Planet Airmen because the trumpet player in Sprout and Lair, Harold Kirchin, his brother was uh, Bill Kirchin, who was in Commander Cody and has since played with, you know, Elvis Costello and tons and tons of people. Right. Uh, still friends with both of them. Uh, and that was, that was a pretty fun experience. Too. No kidding. Okay, so you ended up moving out to, to go to Cal Arts. That was to, to study music? Yeah, you know, I was a professional dropout. I, I went to college four times and one place lasted a year. Cal Arts was the last one of the most high profile. Well, actually, I went to the U of M afterwards, but I don't talk about it. It was a mistake. Yeah, I moved out to Cal Arts very briefly. You know, it was 76. You know, the first Patti Smith album had come out. Station to Station was a big deal, but the Ramones hadn't, at that point, hadn't released their first album. And sometimes I wonder, like, you know, I was a composition major. They liked my compositions. Uh, if I had stayed on, you know, I probably wouldn't been involved with the L.A. punk scene. Yeah, you know, that's probably no kidding. Bad. <laughs> and, then, and I also maybe I would have gotten a degree and been a teacher, you know, I would have taught at Cal Arts and played in an L.A. punk thing. Yeah. You know, what did you have? Yeah. What did you have in mind, like as far as what you wanted to do in music? I had I once Sprout and Layer folded, and you know I was in high school, eleventh and twelfth grade. I had written an album, and we had like a really pretty good band, and just nothing came of it. And it was really like a kick in the jaw. Uh, so by around Cal Arts, I didn't know what I was doing. It was like it was interesting. I liked, you know, I liked. Uh, Boulez piano sonatas and I like Verez but I also like you know Station to Station and I think Here Come the uh, sorry uh, Another Green World was out at that time also and so I didn't know what I wanted to do you know and when I was at Cal Arts I thought do I, I don't want to be part of a institution and what can you do as a composer you have to become an institution you have to be a teacher and I didn't want to become part of an organization. So I just kind of stumbled around, basically. I stumbled around until I stumbled to Boston to become a piano technician. And then I found that the punk rock scene in Boston was just kick ass. And within a year I was in Mission Brown. Yeah, so uh, tell me about meeting Clint. How did, you, how did you two meet? Well, I'd moved to Boston to become a piano technician, as I mentioned, because the scene in Ann Arbor with, my brothers were in Destroy All Monsters with Ron Ashton and Mike Davis. It just wasn't enough for me, and I developed tinnitus anyways already by that point. So when I came to Boston, I wasn't going to play in rock music, but then the scene was so vibrant. You saw this art punk posters, and it's like, there's nothing like this in Ann Arbor. Like, and then I saw this advert, uh, which it said needed a bass player for, needed a bass player that liked punk rock and also could read music you know and i just dropped out of music school and loved punk rock i was the guy and i called him up and the guy said this was eric lingan from moving parts he said no we need a guitarist not a bass player and i said okay i'll play guitar you know <laughs> i wanted in like here was my ticket finally out of the doldrums so i auditioned when i i knocked on the door and no one answered because her moans were playing really loud in the living room 
and I believe I've told the story before, but I opened the door and the Ramones were on. I started doing this kind of spaz dance because that's what you do to the Ramones <laughs> and came out of the kitchen doing the exact same dance. <laughs> it wasn't something we'd learned on TV. We were, we were bonding before we knew we were bonding. Right. So that was my, the introduction to the moving parts, which was Eric Lindgren's more proggish, you know, more intellectual band and, between the breakup of Burma and kind of starting your your own stuff, you were still doing primarily bird songs of the Mesozoic. Burma, well, I, I always have too many ideas going at the same time. So while Burma was active, I I'd been playing piano at the house where I lived with Eric Lindgren, and he he was pretty pissed at particularly me for kind of breaking up moving parts and forming Burma. Mm. And I was still living in the house with him, and it wasn't very comfortable. <laughs> I'll say that. But then he came and saw Mission of Burma, and he had an epiphany to some degree. And he said, he, he said to me, you know, you're right to break up the moving parts. Mission of Burma is a much better band. So after that, the tension was much less. And he had a piano in the house. So I, you know, I'm a piano player as well as a guitarist. And I was just writing these pieces. And he said, I, why don't we use my studio, and you can record those piano pieces. And I said, well, sure. Okay. And that was while Burma was going on. And that was the foundation of Bird Songs of the Mesozoic. And I recorded one piece of that and was released on a compilation in Boston, the Modern Method Sampler, I think. And then because of that, we had to play a show for the record release. And so me and Eric and Martin Swope and David Hild and Steve Stain and Peter Prescott as drummers with Steve Stain, who was on a New Alliance Records, gave one record. He was whipping a can with a chain. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty anarchistic, more anarchistic than the band became later. But Bird Songs was simultaneous with the part of Burma, though totally a secondary ensemble. But when I had to quit Burma because of the volume, Bird Songs was just sitting there waiting to happen. And so I made it a real band. But then by that fall, I had gotten the looper with 16 second digital delay, and I started doing what became Maximum Electric Piano that fall. So always I'm doing at least two things at the same time and they're always, it's kind of a problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's pretty obvious around this era, there's kind of just a, you know, an explosion of material. So if I can call the, the no man name, like a, a concept, we've got the no man is hurting me album. No man is Roger Miller, no man's band, etc. Yeah, yeah. Am I right to consider no man kind of a concept in a way? I guess so. I mean, it's it comes from you know Ulysses making fun of Prometheus. Uh, his name isn't Prometheus. I can't remember what the Cyclops' name is. Now the name escapes me in the story of Ulysses. And the Cyclops asks him what his name is, and, I, and his, he says his name is No Man, which mm -hmm. is nobody. And as Ulysses has poked his eye out with a stake, and the, and Ulysses is leaving in a boat, and the Cyclops, this giant Cyclops, is screaming and yelling. And he says, he's yelling to his friends, you know, his other Cyclops to come help him. And he's saying, no man is hurting me. And so they think, well, no one's hurting you. Why should we come save you? So it's kind of a trick. Uh, you know, Ulysses was kind of a overthinker. Perhaps I'm an overthinker. And it's, it's kind of a trick name to mess with uh, conceptions. Mm, okay. But it just happened. To, I mean, it's just a thing that I like. I always like the story of Ulysses ever since I was a little kid. Uh, tell me about Russ Smith. How does he come into the picture? 
Um, he was the engineer, Eric Lindgren, again, given that I broke up moving parts, or it wasn't just me, but mostly. Uh, Eric was very, really pretty generous to me, and he let me use his studio for free to do my first solo record, No Man Is Hurting Me, which, for the record, I don't think is such a great album. It's got a couple good tracks, but it's, it's exactly what you'd expect when a guy does his first solo album. Right. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. But there's some good stuff on it, and it laid the groundwork for it. Uh, but he was the engineer, and when I started touring with Maximum Electric Piano, while I was touring with Birdsong from Mesozoic, I needed someone to help me move this this large piano, which broke in two parts. It was electric. It had strings. It was a Yamaha CP70. It had strings and broke into two parts, but it took two people, and he became the sound man, and we toured a lot. Mm. So that's that's where it just kind of stumbled into being. I would say that's the most likely scenario. What can you tell me about Russ's band with Eric, Family Fun? What what did they sound like? Uh, I never saw them play live. I do know my favorite song on there was Country Club Combo, and it was the one song that Russ Smith wrote. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that. I mean, Eric was always coming up with kind of quirky ideas, and, uh, you know, I respect that. Mm-hmm. It, it, they didn't always resonate with me, but... Damage the Enemy came out on New Alliance in 89, do you know which one came first, that or or Win Instantly? Win Instantly was the first record on on Greg's labels or that SST New Alliance composite, mm-hmm. um, and it came about the album before no, Win Instantly was the Big Industry, which I think is a better record. It's it's really it's pretty stripped down. It's just me doing the looping thing. Uh, there are some overdubs on it, but it's I think it's a superior record. That was on Ace of Hearts. And then I was going to release the next record on Ace of Hearts, which was Win Instantly. And Rick ran out of money. And so, and he couldn't put it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, call, I called Greg, and Greg said he would put it out. So that's the first record I made in for, the, for that, you know, the mixture of SST and New Alliance. Right. I'm assuming you, uh, enc- you encountered Greg in the Burma days? Uh, yeah, we opened up. For them, their very first show in, in New York City, when all the guys came up from from D.C., Minor Threat guys, and yeah, I mean, I liked them. He, they gave a, they gave me. I had a copy of uh, whatever the the Yellow Black Flag record. I like. I mean, I liked it. I mean, they were kind of again. They were absurd in a way that the Stooges were kind of absurd to me. Like they, you know, I, again, I grew up in a fairly sophisticated musical environment. So, you know, it was nothing to me to like transcribe the Rite of Spring into an ensemble. Like I can do that, you know? So Black Flag was pretty raw and crude in some respects, like the Stooges. But the thing that transcended that, transcended that. And so that was, you know, that's that's what was, it was it was kind of an incredible experience. Okay, Win Instantly was recorded at Downtown Recorders in Boston, June through November of '88. So I'm assuming over a you know multiple sessions. Yeah, it's hard for me to remember exactly, but yes, I'm sure that's how it was done. You know, I was touring a lot. I was touring with uh, Bird Songs of the Mesozoic and Maximum Electric Piano, and I was doing other things off and on as well. So you know, when there was downtime, you record. Mm-hmm. What like who would you have been playing with besides? bird songs did you get put on I'm, I'm just curious about you know were, were you playing with like punk bands or were you playing you know no, no. 
it'd be more like odd ensembles that like what for one show it was a art opening with somebody i played cornet through my looping device and and through all the flow stones but i played in a closet but the the amplifier was outside so no one saw me play <laughs> but so i played for like a half hour 45 minutes playing cornet through loops and devices so it was stuff like that you know like yeah. kind of uh, things that just amused me Mission of Burma fans, were they like coming out to see you and went, you know, what was their reaction to what you were doing? Um, some liked it and some did not. You know, here, I mean, some people thought, well, a solo piano guy, you mean like Elton John? I go, <laughs> no, no, no. But that's all they could hear. And even on, uh, you know, because some of this piano stuff, it had a classical element uh, because I studied classical as a kid. And some people, you know, like it was the antithesis to some people. It was like, what the hell happened to Roger? Right. I, I believe that some punk rockers thought that. Some of the people that I know thought that now that they've seen the complete diversity of what I've done, you know, <laughs> it's covered virtually everything. I've gone back to Burma. I've got my rock band trinary system, you know, and I've done like super avant-garde, you mm-hmm. know, like like AMM kind of improv stuff. And so people, I think, are more forgiving now. They see the big picture better. Yeah, when you look through today's lens and look at the the whole body of work, including Mission of Burma, you know, who had some experimentation as well with the loops. and oh, yeah. uh, it, it makes sense, but I can see at the time people, like you say, being like, what the hell's Roger doing? Yeah, yeah there, there were some. And then there's others that liked both things, and those I really appreciated those that did. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was engineered by Jeff Whitehead. What can you tell me about Jeff? Um, really cool guy. He engineered also the big industry, uh, and he engineered some of the early bird song stuff. He was the go-to guy at Downtown Recorders. And at first, he didn't say much, and then I started to to get his like low-key humor. And eventually, I became really good friends with him. And he produced like a lot of records that I did on New Alliance. Uh, and like the exquisite, uh, maybe somewhere else, ST, like Roger Miller's exquisite corpse. He produced, he produced uh, Woman in Half, Xylil. No, he didn't produce Xylil, but anyway, he produced a lot of stuff. He's a good friend of mine, but he he was mostly a math whiz. And <laughs> he would do things like drive with uh, microphones in cars at high speeds and test the air pressure with the different types of windows. <laughs> and that's, that's not quite quite right, but it, like, you know, he he was a real interesting uh, guy, but not so much a punk rocker. Mm-hmm. Well, sounds like maybe down with some experimentation though. Oh yeah, he was, he was, people generally like working with me because almost always something's gonna come up that they've never encountered. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of my traits, and sometimes it may be that they don't want to encounter it, or they wish I'd never done it. But it's it's always going to be there's always going to be something different, right? Okay, let's talk about this record then. So it starts with the track "Run Water Run," definitely flexing your classical composer chops. Yeah, and you know that's the one where I think some review of it said I put on "Run Water Run Water," and I'd like to leave Roger's corpse next to Rick Wake keyboard ouch <laughs> I go, that's a little bit harsh yeah. 
But I, you know, I, in a way, I can see why they thought that. You know, it's just, and it's actually, I, I'm not really that fond of this of certain aspects of this record for that very reason. Mm. It was like it was more classically, whereas now, you know, I write for music for string quartet, and my dream interpretation guitar music uses modern composing more like as if I was a punk rocker from music school, rather. Whereas here, it's like I grew up playing piano. Mm-hmm. That's what it's. I like me, but but I like the song. You know, it's it's got a pretty pretty propulsive groove to it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm assuming that's Larry Dirsch on drums. Yeah, Larry Dirsch on drums. This is the first time I used Larry Dirsch, who I've since worked with on Binary System, which was on SST or New Alliance. Mm-hmm. He's in my current band, Trinary System. Also, he's just a really excellent drummer. Yeah, tell me about his band, Common Ailments of Maturity. What do you know about them? Uh, the first time I encountered them, I was playing a Maximum Electric Piano show. Uh, I can't remember the name of the venue, but it was in Morgantown, West Virginia. Yeah, it's a venue I played you know, once a year. Mm-hmm. And there's a band called Common Ailments of Maturity, and they claimed to be from Boston. And I said, fuck, I've never heard of them. Who are these people just, you know, trying to jump on a bandwagon? Right. I found out later they had just moved to us. And I was ready to completely dismiss them. But once they started playing, I was like, oh, man. And it was Larry. Larry's drumming. It was The band was, was a guitarist who was a pretty interesting writer and lyricist, saying a little bit like Robert Smith. His guitar was really percussive. It was a keyboard player who had a memory Moog synthesizer, which, he had, which it was a state-of-the-art synthesizer live concert you know moog type and he had spray painted it so he couldn't <laughs> i think he couldn't read all the controls so and he was playing mostly percussive and then there was larry dirsch on drums and he had these patterns both russ smith and i were just knocked out by uh and that's why when i was doing this record i said god i need a percussionist and russ smith suggested what about larry dirsch remember him and i go yeah he's the guy mm-hmm. and that's that's how uh he got dragged into it. And I've, yeah, I've been working with him ever since, really. Mm-hmm. When you were playing stuff like live that had guitars on it, were you looping the the piano and then picking up a guitar, or how did you how did you do that? Not in this record. I mean, the big industry is closer to what I do live. This one, this one I, I orchestrated. And again, I can see why people would dislike that. I mean, this is about the progiest record I ever made, and I don't really like prog, so it's like I don't. So, but I still, I mean, there's a lot of stuff on here that's pretty avant-garde still that I would stand behind. But I was thinking that when this record came out, I was actually going to have a band, a percussionist, a violinist, and me, and that's what it was going to be, you know. And there would be no guitar on the live, you know. You hear. Lots of bands you hear overdubs that you don't hear live, but the live energy makes up for the lack of them. Right. So that was my thought behind it. The next track is No Man's Landing. Now I hear some, what's called on the album is non-ordinary percussion on this one. Would that possibly be Ken Winokur? That would possibly be Ken Winokur. The reason I started working with him, he was a photographer earlier. He actually took some... He took the photos in the first Bird Songs record, but he he was sampling. St- in those days, samplers were few and far between. Mm-hmm. This was right around the time 
just the beginning of that kind of thing. And he had, an, I think it was an Ensonique, I think that was the sampler. And he had like in there like scissors, pieces of metal being dropped, stuff like that. And and that's what I wanted because even in Ann Arbor with my brothers, when we would do some just home recordings, we would, you know, use kitchen utensils and, and boxes and stuff. So my interests already lay in that direction. And here was a guy who was a good percussionist and also he had it already worked out. So I, I, I asked him to play on this record for that reason. Cause I like, you know, I didn't want like a regular, I mean, there is a regular kick snare off and on on this record, but I also like the idea of, you know, unorthodox sounds that's you know that's one of the things that i generally have kept ever since i started really making music were you taking the backing tracks from this and putting them into a sampler or something as a loop to recreate this live when you're performing it solo no you know and by the time this record came out i stopped doing this uh i had a child and i had to i i suddenly had this running into a wall of having to be a mature adult. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so that, so I never got around to performing this. I was, I was, I had a setup of violinist and percussionist I wanted to play with, but it, I never, I just thought this isn't going to go anywhere. You know, no one wants this avant-garde classical rock stuff. You know? so, so that's when I switched to the rock thing with the rhythm machine, which was even stupider, like much, much, <laughs> much stupider. Like with the classic example of guy confronted with problem makes wrong decisions. <laughs> it was really, really bad. It wasn't until later that when I started doing soundtrack work, which I'm really good at, mm-hmm. you know, if, if I had wanted to become a soundtracker and really, you know, move to LA, I probably could have been doing, you know, I've scored four films that were Sundance documentaries. But, you know, if I'd really wanted to do it, I probably could have been a real soundtracker. But, you know, I'm too, uh, too self-driven to do that. Uh, the violinist that you're mentioning, would that have been Judy Stanton? Yes. Mm-hmm. She also played on Roger Miller's Exquisite Corpse, which was on SST, and she played on Xylil, which was on, I think, New Alliance. Mm. I'm still friends with her, yeah. Okay, the next song is Calling the Animals. Now, when I'm listening to this, I'm thinking to myself, like you mentioned your, your hearing problems and, and, you know, those are well-documented kind of the prevailing narrative is that you quit Burma, you know, because you didn't, you wanted to get away from loud rock music. But when I hear this, I picturing it being very loud, <laughs> you know, it's quite noisy and, and I'm, it's I'm, noisy. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's noisy, but a maximum electric piano concert, the, the difference DB wise is mind-boggling between that and Mission Abram. I'm, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> it, it, it sounds like it because I was running it through a big muff fuzz stone, so it sounds like it's you know, like, you know, but I could get that sound at, you know, home stereo level. Right, right. You know, so it really wasn't all that loud. Uh, but I like the idea that it gave that. It was like had the energy of being like a live concert. And I hear, again, Larry Durser playing drums. Yeah, and I'm playing guitar. But, you know, you can get feedback at incredibly quiet volumes if you do it right. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't like, playing through a Marshall or anything on this. Uh, the things that amuse me about this song, that middle break, I didn't play guitar, but I had two drumsticks. And I, you know, I'm playing this electric piano that has strings and pickups on it. I have the fuzz on and that whole middle break 
I pick up the two drumsticks and I'm playing the legs of the piano. Uh-huh. <laughs> metal. I'm like hitting on metal. You hear this clank. And at the same time, you hear this just totally demolished, crushed sound of a fuzz tone with all the strings open, uh, but kind of in pulse. And so I'm playing the top of the piano and the bottom of it, which is the exact thing you're not supposed to do with a piano. Like this is the, the, whatever, the ultimate mistreatment of a piano is to play it with drumsticks <laughs> so that was really that was a really effective thing live uh i remember playing this once in tuscaloosa alabama uh jello jello came by he was he was at the university and uh he was doing a spoken word and he came in later and we were hanging out but when i did calling the animals the audience was you know alabama's not really known for punk rock right and it was you know they looked to me, fratty-like, but for all I know, they were like the freakiest guys in town. But when they heard calling the animals, they just went berserk. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of like Animal House. Like, that wasn't really what I had in mind. But if you like it, I don't care how, how, you know, if you like it, I'm just grateful that people like it. Yep. But, uh, but yeah, the the percussion thing where I'm playing the the piano with drumsticks, but, you know, a nice little bit of theater. Mm Mm-hmm. I hear another voice on that song is and possibly Tanya Donnelly. Yeah, Tanya Donnelly from Throwing Muses and Belly and any number of things. I, I really liked her singing in Throwing Muses and uh I double billed them a couple times. And and she's also she sang on uh the first Burma Reunion album on off on. She mm-hmm. sang on one of my songs because I like her singing so much. The next one is Scratch. Now, that, this is an interesting song, and I read somewhere that this is the, you really had to prepare the instrument for this one, like, you know, with uh, uh, alligator clips and, and these kinds of things. Where, where did yeah, you... Yeah. Is, where, and I know you've talked about Fred Frith before, and was he, uh, like, an influence in your in your ideas to, to prepare the instruments like that? Well, he was an influence. He made it easy to do particularly for guitar. He, he was the first prepared guitarist that I knew of. But, you know, I was already familiar with John Cage's prepared piano before hmm. before I'd heard of Fred Frith. Um, and so this is more of a John Cage thing, Bolts. Right. I mean, almost all these songs, I, you know, it's hard, I can't, don't know them that well, but definitely Scratch. You don't bump, 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 ding, don't go, go down, It's kind of this upside down beat. Uh, yeah, it's bolts, a, a bolt. Like I, I would prepare three specific notes, the notes that I didn't need to play the rest of the song, you know, on the keyboard. Right. And uh, yeah, so I got it. You know, it's from John Cage, but it was be, because of Fred Frith's use of alligator clips, which are so easy to use. That was the first thing that I did with prepared piano, which I did on Trem 2 on the Versus album by Burma. Ah, I played yeah. a little bit of prepared piano in the middle section of that. Yeah. And also when I was working with David Hill, I did some. So Fred Frith helped me to do it, but it was John Cage who was the guy who you know really led the way to preparing pianos. And I just thought this it was a way to make, because the piano is so big and it has like bass notes, treble notes, middle notes, and if you add these bolts and alligator clips, percussion, then that's how you make a one-person ensemble out of it. Right. Were you using tape loops live, too, or was it mostly digital? Uh, Not tape loops. I was using... It's this device that I got in 1983, fall of 1983. A friend of mine, Martha Swetsoff, who was in the band 
the all-woman all band uh, Bound and Gagged in Boston, kind of a no-wavish band. Mm -hmm. uh, she called me up and said, there's this looping device, Roger, and I'm pretty sure you want it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, Martin had already done tape loops, and my brothers had messed with tape loops. I knew tape loops, you know. Mm -hmm. But when I saw this device and I got it, I mean, it was only 350 bucks. And I just went, oh, my God, I can now, like when I moved to Boston, I wasn't going to play in rock bands because I already had tinnitus, but it was too good of a scene not to do it. Yeah. But I was going to actually use tape loops, like record my my left-hand ostinatos, bass rhythms in a tape recorder and start it up there, and then I could play on top of it. So that would serve as, so I could be kind of two people simultaneously. But I never got around to that because I joined a rock band instead. But here I could do that. I could, you know, and the, yeah, so stuff like Scratch, it was, it was that, you know, do that kind of thing. In the middle section, I hit a button and the whole loops dropped an octave lower. That's the real floaty section of Scratch has that quality to it. And then when I come out of that floaty section, I, I start strumming the inside of the harp of the piano with a guitar pick. And then I hit the octave back up. So right when the beat comes back to full tempo, there's also this new rhythm sound I'm playing inside on the piano. So it was pretty elaborate orchestration given the simplicity of one looping. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really, really love it. Any particular reason you chose to cover? The, I mean, it's your song, so it's not really a cover, but this is not a photograph, I guess, to um, re-record it? <laughs> no, it was just fun. But to be honest, that wasn't going to be on the album. It was like a, you know, an interesting B-side or something I could release. You know, no one released anything digitally that then, except for, you know, I mean, there was no internet at that point. Right. But because the reason I moved the record to SST, because Ace of Arts ran out of money and I couldn't keep, I was going to record more material and I'd already recorded photograph and I didn't have any more money. So I included it on the album. Yeah. I kind of wish I had not done that. Again, you know, I could see people complaining, like, what the fuck are we doing? Uh, quite, Again, the, quite the contrary. I think it's cool. But... Oh, you think it's cool? Well, yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah. Uh, I think for the percussion on that, I had a piece of wood and the strings, and I just played, like, the flat of my hand, kind of a percussive thing with that rattling thing became the rhythm track. Uh, I will say that, uh, uh, do you know the artist Helen Money? Hmm. Sounds familiar, but remind me. Um, she's she was Chicago based. She might be in LA now. She's a cellist that does looping stuff, and she said that this album was the one that inspired her to do cello with loops. Ah. And she, you know, Shellac has toured with them with her, and she's played with, I think, with uh, Bob Mole and other stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm friendly with her, and I like her work quite a bit. But this album was was a real inspiration. Yeah, that's cool. Oh, that's nice. I just thought of it as a failure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The song, The Promised Land, I'm guessing that's Russ on vocals. Doesn't sound like you. No, that's me. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, the background, the high vocals at the end is, uh, again, Tanya Dolan is doing excellent counterpoint. But I'm singing lead on it. Yeah. You know, I don't really like any of the vocals on this album, particularly. It's just it's, it, when I play guitar, I, I sing much better than 
That's just, just my take on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, well, I mean, I like the song here again, you know, like tie me to a post, you know, tie me to whatever, uh, you're on a boat, tie me to the, the mast. Again, it's a Ulysses reference, you know, in the mm-hmm. siren. Mm-hmm. So when you're writing something like this, like how much of the, this album was written when you went into the studio and how much of it is studio experimentation? I mean, the songs were all, had been performed live with just me. Okay. So the song structures and everything else about it was there. But then I would add stuff. Once I'd gotten the basic stuff down, like a live performance, then I would add stuff. So the drums were added afterwards the guitars this that and the other thing were all added afterwards okay yeah i'm i mean i play in bands i have no idea how you write something like this or do are you hearing it in your head as like a complete song or are you like how are you how do you write something like this well i mean the promise line to me seems like a pretty straightforward pop song Mm -hmm. (laughs) But that that may be my idea of a straightforward pop. I mean, there's a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, no, verse, chorus, instrumental, verse, chorus. Essentially, that's outside of that. There's other things that go to it. Uh, that whistling riff in live that was played on the piano, but I just thought it would be kind of cooler to to loop a whistling riff and, hmm. and sync it up. Uh, so that was like that was orchestrating it after the fact. Uh, okay. The kind of swirling sounds on this is that the, there's a credit on the album of a sonic percolator and that's, <laughs> it sounds like a sonic percolator to me. It could be. Let me just see. So, yeah, Tanya, Tanya just did excellent work on this. She's such a good singer. Um, so on the whole middle, that whole middle section, that's kind of where it gets the strangest. There's this kind of a muted low E thing, which is very much a Sid Barrett gesture. Yeah. You know, like kind of going that. And then I'm hitting this, uh, I'm slamming a metal guitar slide on the inside of the piano with a fuzz tone on to get that. Uh-huh. And Russ is doing a, a slap back on it. So it's, it, Yeah, and I, I can't remember exactly how we did it, but sometimes I would open up the sustain pedal and would last, this crushing sound would last longer. But he would, yeah, I'm sure he, he added things like uh, a, a backwards effects. Uh, the RPS 10 was an early backwards device. It would sample it and turn it backwards. Uh, he might have been doing that on this. Uh, and he would also do pitch shifting. Did Russ perform live with you, or was, would it just have been you? Um, he, he was the sound man, but back at the soundboard, he would run my vocals and sometimes the loops through devices. Okay. Okay. I guess a better, you're, I take your point about the promised land. You take all the, you know, experimentation off of it and you know, you're right. It's a, it's a pretty standard song. The next one, the quarry, explain that song to me though. That's maybe a better example of what I'm talking about. It's super interesting song. That one. It's, I mean, it's a mood piece. Uh, it's interesting. My mom had just died. I think that's mostly what's inspired it. Like, and, you know, she died too soon. She died of cancer. Uh, I mean, you don't have to know that to appreciate the song as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's, that was kind of the inspiration for it. 
or or the mood that help, helps set the mood. Uh, da, da, da. Uh, I mean, but again, even that has kind of a verse chorus quality to it. Yeah. And then it's, it's just, it's basically that one bass loop. Like once I got that bass loop, da, 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 it can go through the whole song, except for I think in the chorus, when I change chords, I fade it out. So it's just piano and singing, and then I fade it back in. You know, again, that's kind of orchestration, that uh, kind of peculiar. I, I hit a note and then I have my I have an echo unit, you know, cheap old one, you know, an Ibanez, it's pretty good. And I just gradually move the regeneration so that it makes the pitch go up, and then I loop uh. that with a bass line. So, so it gave it a real a really nice mood. I think it's the mood that's is what makes this piece. Mm -hmm. And that kind of crazy. I mean, it's not really crazy, but I'm seeing the falsetto along with my guitar or guitar solo, the, the piano solo, which is a fuzz tone, which sounds like more or less a guitar. Uh, it's, yep. <laughs> but it's piano. I mean, I think the, the only actual overdub in this one is Russ is playing this odd, tiny little bass, uh, a small bass, but it had kind of like rubber bandish kind of strings and was fretless. So it's kind of it sounds like a stand up bass. So that. Gives, gives that ostinato, that low bass line, a little more substance. And then I think Ken is playing in the distance kind of a hand drum, kind of a conga, jumbe kind of feel to it. Okay. But, but it's all, I think what makes this piece interesting, if, if one finds it interesting, is, is primarily the mood. It's definitely kind of like, you know, you've been jarred out of the world that you're normally used to, you know. Mm hmm Okay, the next song is Renegades. Lots of percussion, it, almost like industrial stuff, like, you know, some groups were using things like big oil tanks and, and, and those kinds yeah, of things. Yeah. I love that uh, Halber Mensch album by Einstein and the Neubauten. Yeah. I just thought that was the fucking coolest thing. Just the, the I mean, why if they didn't, they used real metal, and so it was a lot sloppier and more chaotic. But that's what I... As soon as I heard them do that, I go, God, that's, 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 there's now there's this ability in these samples to do this kind of thing that I'd always wanted to do. You know, you, instead of bringing around, you know, two oil, you know, like stuff that would be impossible to carry on stage, you have it on a sampler. Right. And you make those sounds. That, that was a real, a real ear opener for me. Now, this one, the beginning of it is all prepared piano. Yeah, that's all just prepared piano stuff at the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm, I think I'm playing percussion in this one. <laughs> There's a really interesting uh, story about this. And that heavy kind of crushed, snarish kind of sound. I can't remember what the sound was. In the middle section, I got a book on Latin, and it's it's vos ipsos futute merve aleque leges etiquitus. It's done in kind of a Gregorian chant mm -hmm. kind of style, uh, and that means go fuck yourselves, you you fascists who create rules or something. Like that. <laughs> when I was playing this show, oh man, I was playing this song. I was playing somewhere in Kalamazoo, Michigan, at a Catholic college, you know, and uh, it was a really interesting show. And the guy, before I went on, he said, everybody in the audience, just fold your arms. And everyone fold their arms. Now lift your arms up and fold them the other way. 
And, and he said, feels kind of strange, doesn't it? Well, that's kind of like Roger's music. <laughs> and I'm like, going, well, okay. <laughs> but, but the second set, there weren't as many people there, but I saw four nuns in the audience. And they were like, you know, they were, really, they were listening to my, you know, pretty much avant-garde music. Right. And then in the middle of the song, it must have like just jumped out like a, a message from hell in Latin, which I'm sure they understood. And I can just see them going, what? And they're probably just going, I didn't hear that. <laughs> but, you know, I didn't really have anything against the nuns. I mean, the fact that they were listening to this stuff at all was... I know what that, I know what that snare sound is. It's me again, me hitting the the piano with the sustain pedal down with a fuzz down on with my metal guitar stuff, which I use on, and I'm slamming onto one of the metal struts of the piano. So it's just a, mm -hmm. it sounds like you know demolition derbies. Yep. <laughs> but you know I can get that same sound at two dB. You know it isn't really loud. It just sounds loud. Right. Yeah. yeah. Only loudness would be how loud you had it through an amplifier. So, I mean, I think that's, you know, I see, right, right. And then it goes, then I'm playing the prepared piano notes with a fuzz tone, and I'm slowing down the loop by hand while I'm hitting those notes. And then Ross Sonic Percolator is sampling something. And so, yeah, and then I've hit the octave lower sound yeah, so it's pretty chaotic in there. Mm -hmm. Comes close to the big industry, and then it just kind of fades out at the end, and it's kind of oh, I see, yeah, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, I'm just slamming the piano with the fuzz tone on, and then this kind of depressing afterlog. Someone take the renegades, take take them to their graves. That what the line is. But the inspiration was or part of the reason of the song Renegades is I had seen the Duchamp, the Duchamp Museum in Philadelphia. There's a whole wing of some museum there that has Duchamp stuff. And it's got, you know, his, his inverted bicycle wheel, which is one of his early ready-mades. And it, it wasn't even the original one. It was like the third copy, you know, the other ones that all been destroyed. And it said, do not touch. Mm -hmm. Like, it's absurd. It's like, I could touch it and you could just wear it out and put another one up and it would be just <laughs> good. Yeah. But, but now it was enshrined and, and that which was once radical and threatening is now turned into this little tiny, this little cute thing that you're supposed to revere and no longer has any threat whatsoever. Yeah. So that's kind of the essence. Yeah, so someone take the renegades to their graves, you know, wait, wait until they're, you can put them on a pedestal like they do with Rocky Erickson in Austin, Texas now. Like, you know, you go into hotels and there's pictures of Rocky Erickson and the elevators. And you know, like in 1967, they were hounded by the cops. Yep. And they're <laughs> the enemy. Now, now that they're safe and they're fun, you know, oh yeah, those were the fun times. Now, what are those fun times now? You're still, you still want to kill those people now. Like in yeah. 20 years, you want to kill them now, you'll put it in a museum. Yeah, for sure. Okay, the, the last track is Voluptuous Airplanes, probably the most experimental track. Yeah, I like the, it's good. Yeah, well, it's, when I'm listening to the side two of this record, I feel like it's very deliberately sequenced with kind of the, you know, these last three are kind of the more experimental tracks to me. Yeah, yeah. And the side, it starts with The Promised Land, I think. Yep. 
yeah. Yeah, it's a nice it's a nice sequence. I mean, I like Promised Land for the pop element that it is. It's got that little Barrett aspect. And then the quarry has got a nice mood. And then the last two, yeah, yeah, it's, it's got a, quite an industrial sound. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really what keeps the record from being like run water, run water. You know, if you wanted to critique it for prog elements, that's where it's most manifest. But by the time you get to voluptuous airplanes and renegades, you know, come on, if that's all you're obsessing over, you've missed the whole point. For sure, yeah. Oh, yeah, I really like that one. Um, at, the, at the beginning, I'm just kind of improvising on the prepared piano when I had Ken, I, mean, I think he's playing scissors, sampled scissors in there. Yeah, and then I speed up the loop that I made. Uh, and then I and then I add those dive bombing guitar things. Because, you know, airplanes, luxurious airplanes. <laughs> you gotta make it sound like you're dive bombing. That's, that's, I think that's my favorite piece. The cover image for this record, is it, what is it? Is it like a test pattern or something? Yeah, I was, I was always fascinated. Like, I mean, it doesn't, none of this is relevant now, but, you know, in the 60s and even through the mid 70s, television would go off. You know, you had your five channels before cable and would go off at midnight or one or two and a test pattern would go on for three or four hours, there'd be nothing on TV. And that was the test pattern. I still use that actually for uh, my current logo for my art installation, transmuting the prosaic. Mm-hmm. I like the idea. A, it's a really cool graphic. And it also means, you know, kill your television. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, so, so to me, it, it's a win-win situation. Okay, and the the Cyclops photo. Any idea? Who, do you know how that was? Was that's it a, a cut really, and paste thing, or how how would that have been created? That, that's on the flip side of it. Um, I how did it get created? Uh, I think Kathy. I don't know how it was created. Probably by scanning and rescanning. You know, again, yeah, it's the whole Cyclops because <laughs> I I like that that epic that epic journey into the darkness and returning which is the story of ulysses mm-hmm. he even talks about mentions the elijah fields on this not a photograph yeah so i can't remember how it was done exactly on your website it mentions that there's going to be a digital version of this at some point is that still something oh, we it, can look for yeah it's on there now it's on my band camp That's oh it I'm is looking. yeah yeah maybe i didn't get, i didn't update my i do so much stuff that it's hard to keep track of everything yeah it's, it's irritating okay good well that's good our listeners can hear it not always the case with some of this sst stuff yeah you know and i mean you can buy it too and it comes with the album notes the big industry the album just before which i think is better is also on there and that's the one that has tons of ephemera from the time but i'll, I'll send that to you when you send me oh yeah amazing uh yeah, because I, you know, I like keeping things that are important to me. I'm not, a, I'm not really a collector. You know, if I don't like a record, I'll get rid of it. If I don't want to have objects, the things that mean something to me, like the maximum electric piano stuff, I really like. Yeah, the and rock band stuff, I just like for a lot of that way. <laughs> 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 I mean, I kept the cool, the cool stuff. You're so prolific; it's hard to know which direction to to ask about which all your various projects. So I'll just ask, you know, what you're up to in 2023. In 2023, um, last 
in fall of 2022, I released my album Eight Dream Interpretations for Solo Electronic Solo Electric Guitar Ensemble. That's where I use a looper. It's a much more elaborate looper than the Electroharmonics one. It's called the Boomerang Three. Mm -hmm. It's basically me taking this maximum electric piano concept and moving it to guitars so it's more portable. Mm. So I play through four guitars. Three of them are lap steels on legs. And two of them I have alligator clips and bolts on, so they function much like the prepared piano on this record, on the Winston record. And one of them's tuned to a unison, uh, Glenn Branca unison E, which sometimes I'll make really thick melodies with a slide, or other times I'll put like, you know, fork through it or intertwine a piece of cardboard to make it a percussion instrument. And I organize all the music by dreams, and uh, I'm really, really excited about it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's gotten just really, really, really good reviews like Pop Matters and Mojo and Premier Guitar. I hope I can keep doing that indefinitely. It's, it's really, really fun and challenging and no one else is doing anything like it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> as far as I can tell, yeah. it's, it's one of the most unique things I'm doing. So a mixture of that, uh, I just before COVID hit, I had an agent and she was booking my, I had a concerts at the Warhol Museum, Mass Mocha, which is an art contemporary art museum, and the Institute of Contemporary Arts in Boston for my music for string quartet. And I was also gonna do the dream interpretation guitar music. And my string quartet stuff is not your usual string quartet stuff. And the main, the kind of peak of that concert was to be, except that COVID, kicked it all to hell uh music for string quartet and two turntables i have one turntable that and all the audio on it is record surface noise from my record pop record evolving which i made in 1985 and i don't know if you know who christian markley is i do He's, yep 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 it was reviewed in arts new england alongside his first major piece record without a cover like mm -hmm. at that time we were equals yeah, I just didn't keep pursuing it, and he's now, you know, he's at the tape, yeah. and, and I'm, I'm not. But uh, so, so it's a record. It's about 15 minutes long. That's highly organized. Sometimes it's like beats. Like I found a real low pop and a high pop, and I make grooves out of it. And sometimes it's just record noise, but it's all organized. And I also use those tones. They're called tone on tail that studios give to other studios to balance out the tapes from different studios to different studios. So I use those also as kind of drones. Mm. So it's a 15 minute piece for string quartet that's interacting, it's highly composed with this record. And then I'm also manipulating another turntable doing kind of scratchy kind of stuff. And then I'm working at my art installation, transmuting the prosaic has been at two like BMAC in Brattleboro and the, Free us art space in Port Smith, New Hampshire. Like these are art museums, mm -hmm. uh, galleries, and I'm trying to get it in some more. And, and I do a lot of modified my work called modified vinyl, where I mess with records. And that's my record, Pop Record Evolving, was the first one I made in 1985. It was again in shows with Christian Markley, right? And I got some bunch of new ideas for ways to manipulate to create images on records and manipulate things. It's, it's basically conceptual art. All right, where can people go to, to hear your music and to, to read more about what you're up to? 
if you go to rogerclarkmiller.com, that'll fill you in. But we have some shows coming up. My dream interpretation shows are D.C. and Baltimore at the end of May. The group that I'm in, the Anvil Orchestra, that's we do live uh, silent film accompaniment. That's pretty enjoyable experience. It's quite different from my personal music, but I, I still really enjoy it, and I get, have a lot of freedom in it. Mm-hmm. We're playing Roger Ebert Film Festival, uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, and the Milwaukee Film Festival all at the end of April. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and there'll be, I'm sure there'll be more shows of both coming up. That's very cool. Roger, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Brent. I appreciate it. You take care. All right, you too. Awesome. I just love hearing Roger like play the song while you're interviewing him (laughs) so that he can make sure that he's being really uh, specific and articulate in terms of the comments as we're diving into it. You can tell that this is, you know, a really meaningful body of work, all this work that Roger has done, a true artist, right? Yeah, maybe now people will stop complaining that we don't play music on our show. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean, man? I played uh, the soundtrack to Handy Hints the other episode. Right, right. Come on, come on, man. I can't believe you didn't pick out that that was the A-Team theme song, but whatever. <laughs> Anyways. Hey, how cool was their dad, hey? Yeah, yeah. I hope I'm that cool of a dad. Yeah. A few things I picked picked out, um, his band cap, Roger C. Miller Music. Uh, like you mentioned before the interview, you can hear this and a few of his other SST releases there. He also has a SoundCloud with some of his, uh, you know, uh, soundtrack work and some of his more experimental or ambient types of work. Uh, he often used, uses the C or, or Clark in his knee, name, I believe, to distinguish himself online from Roger King of the Road Miller. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, the Beatles were the flashpoint. This is... That generation, man, and how many times have we heard that on on the show from people? Yeah, yeah, I know, right? Did you catch, though, that, like, speaking of Roger Miller, King of the Road, that's the opening track on Roger Miller's first Maximum Electric Piano record? Yeah, I did, yeah. Love that. Yeah. So he briefly mentions Steve Stain. If you missed it or you don't know what that is, he's referencing a record that came out on New Alliance Records in 1986 called The Brain Feels No Pain, New Alliance 23. Steve was in another New Alliance band called What Makes Donna Twirl and also this wild band called The Blue Daisies who had one album called Wilt on this super short-lived label called Iridescence. You can hear both of those records, the Steve Stain and the Blue Daisies records on youtube they're both totally fucked up in the best way um and i did not know roger was involved in that steve stain record all the more reason to to do like you were mentioning and kind of at least get a little more into some of these new alliance releases at some point yeah the lesser known ones for sure yeah and then we can also get in into a little deeper on the sprout and layer stuff um and you can hear that on youtube as well yeah, have you heard that Steve Stain record? It is craziness. Yeah, yeah, it's wild. Yep, and you can totally tell how like Steve Stain and Roger would have an affinity for each other. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, he also mentions Martha Sweats Off and this group Bound and Gagged. Yeah, I'd never heard that before, so I had to check it out. And wow, you can find their one and only twelve-inch EP, also from nineteen eighty, on YouTube. 
it's pretty wild stuff. Um, he puts them in the no wave category, and I'd say that's about as close as you can get to to an accurate categorization of bound and gagged. But definitely check that out. Uh, we briefly mentioned his brothers Ben Benjamin or Ben Miller and Lawrence or Larry Miller. They both both also have long in- interesting histories in music. Sometimes working together, sometimes working apart, sometimes with Roger. Um, I checked out some of Ben's work on his Bandcamp, Living Records. There's t- lots there. Um, way more to his career than what's up on the Bandcamp. So I definitely have some more work to do. Check out the band Nonfiction he and Lawrence had in the early 80s. Their Who's Running the World album is up, and it's great. Definitely an early punk influence, but also some power pop and, and post-punk in the mix. It's really good, Nonfiction. Uh, he and Lawrence also played in an early incarnation of Destroy All Monsters, Ron Ashton's post-Stooges band. Uh, played on the first Destroy All Monsters singles, which is really cool. Uh, in the 80s, Lawrence had an offshoot of nonfiction called The Empty Set. Also very cool. You can see some amazing footage of them in Chicago in 87 up on YouTube. Check out the song Independence Day by The Empty Set live. There's also a band camp with a bunch of records, including, um, this is The Empty Set, including one of demos for an unreleased album called Streaming Through the Window on a Flight of Stairs, which is really good. I was just rocking to it this week. And and if you want something insane, check out Lawrence's project, Larynx Zillion's Novelty Shop. That has a mm. band camp as well. He describes it as avant-garde glam rock, which is actually a pretty accurate description. Again, as with Ben, there's tons more for both of these guys, and I'm really just scratching the surface with both of them. I'm sure between the three brothers, there's got to be 150-plus albums. Yeah, that's just wild, hey? Yeah. Why don't we dive into this record? Oh, man. I've been looking forward to this all week. History Lesson, Part 2. So, Brent, as is tradition, I'd like to kick off History Lesson 2 with a spiel about this release. This is from the SST Press Kit. Because, of course, we're not going to get many more of these out of the SST catalog. Here we go. No Man is the name Ulysses used to deceive and escape from the Cyclops after he poked his one eye out. It is also Roger Miller's namehead for his current musical manifestation. Called the bastard son of John Cage and Jimi Hendrix by Musician Magazine, Roger Miller has exerted a formidable presence in progressive new music over the past decade. He was a founding member as guitarist of the legendary Boston band Mission of Burma, which he disbanded in 1983 due to the onset of severe tinnitus. Since then, he has pursued new avenues through treated pianos, keyboards, and tape loop manipulation, both with the group Bird Songs of the Mesozoic and as a solo performer. Not as a minimalist, but rather a maximalist. Roger's music is complicated, dynamic, and busy with activity. Win Instantly features Roger on electric guitar, treated pianos and vocals, returning to a Burmese-style rock song form, merged with his extrasensory sonic explorations. He is accompanied by a sampler-sequencer percussion kit made up of sounds he found, such as oil tank, furnace, fan grill, etc. Taking rock to the edge of the avant-garde, the LP explores the sonic jungle of calling the animals and includes an updated version of Mission of Burma's This Is Not a Photograph. 
using acoustic, electric, and synthetic tools to mash the world of sound up into a thick soup. Roger Miller cooks it with his secret recipes and then serves it up for all hungry enough to hear. Use a spoon. You'll want to get every drop. (laughs) All right, so this was released in July of 89 on CD, LP, and cassette. Recorded in Boston, June through November 1988. That's what it says in the liners. Downtown Recorders, which was founded in 1979 by two Boston musicians, Mitch Benoff and Benny Kay. Lots of great records made there. The Pixies recorded Doolittle there. The Real Kids recorded there. No Trend. Thunders recorded there in Cold Blood. Lots of good records came out of Downtown Recorders. Uh, Produced and recorded by Jeff Whitehead, Roger Miller, and Russ Smith. So track one, side one. Run, water, run, water. Right off the bat, that bass note that you think is a bass or a guitar, but I think it's probably hitting him hitting the strings on a piano, maybe. Mm-hmm. He kind of says in the interview that this is too proggy or whatever. This song, Oh, really? Yeah. I too, don't know if it's proggy. Yeah, too orgo, maybe. Or he, <laughs> he says, like, he tells that story about him getting compared to Rick Wakeman, who has some amazing solo albums, by the way. I mean, I'm, I'm a fan, so I don't see that as a bad thing, but... I couldn't disagree more. Like this track is phenomenal. I think he should have shown his classical chops more and maybe he did on some of those other albums, but I specifically mean in a rock setting, like showing that he could really play some classical music. This song's a masterpiece. Perfect album opener for me. Yeah, it's great. Just such an epic, intense, pounding, relentless orchestral violin and industrial sound to me very industrial in the best way in that it's very percussive this is like you know the the classic industrial is is what i would say and so therefore it makes a lot of sense to have this classical feel on top of it yeah uh the next one is no man's landing the first minute is kind of percussion with various kinds of that industrial noise made me wonder if he ever played with elliot sharp it would have been a perfect pairing yeah but when you peel away um, all of the experimentation, you can hear the excellent pop songs underneath, which is not surprising considering how many classics he wrote for, for Mission of Burma. Yeah. I had this weird reference going on as I was listening to this record over the past week, how there were moments where it reminded me of that, you know, that Canadian band Itch. Yep. And also some of those really early Peter Gabriel records. Mm -hmm. If if you mash Peter Gabriel and itch, there are some vibes like that, but a totally modern Roger Miller version of that. And uh, I just love this. It, the vocals really on this record, it's something that I didn't really pick up on um, in mission of Burma in the same way that you do when you listen to a Roger solo record is that man, he can sing. Yeah. I think he mentions Eno in the interview too. Mm, yeah it's still very industrial sounding to me this song but i agree with you it's got a very cool pop song underneath yeah calling the animals was a highlight for me uh great backing vocals from tanya donnelly um, of as he mentions throwing muses but also the breeders and belly Mm -hmm. i love the last half of this track when his voice shoots up like something on a butthole surfers record and it goes into just full-on industrial mode you can you can hear what he talks, talks about in the interview with the drumsticks on the piano legs. Mm-hmm. There's some wicked synths on this track too. Yeah. 
The next one is Scratch. Speaking of Elliot Sharp, some of the percussion here sounds like some slabs or pantars, maybe. I know. I had I had the same thing, right? Like it's the industrial sounds sound like stuff that we've heard on Elliot records. Yeah. He calls this a, a John Cage thing in the interview, and it, it's an apt comparison. Also, some of the percussion is not unlike something you might hear on a Tom Waits record. Ah, yes. Like uh, post-Rain Dogs. Agreed. Yep. yep. Good call. And then we've got This Is Not A Photograph, one of Roger's Mission of Burma classics from their 1981 Signals, Calls, and Marches EP, which if you haven't heard, or if you haven't heard the full-length verses, you need to remedy that like today, although I suspect 99% of the people listening to this are well-versed in Mission of Burma. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. Yeah, also, as you mentioned, the title of that crucial 2006 documentary about the band and their reunion. Mm Mm-hmm. Almost didn't make the record. Kind of not surprised that it it did. Like SST, I'm sure, would have pushed for this to be on the record if they knew it existed because it's not surprising that it got mentioned in that press release as kind of like a, you know, a selling point or whatever. Yeah, and I also understand the the creative tension that Roger would have had and like, ah, you know, like, do I want to... Do I want to just redo the hit and put it on here to sell? You know, I I totally get that. But it stands on its own. Yeah. Okay, flipping it over already, we're on to The Promised Land. So when I first heard this, I thought that solo off the start was a guitar. But after talking to Roger, I'm not so sure. Um, It might be some maximum piano action. Oh, yeah. I think it's keys. Yeah. Yeah, this is also an unbelievable track so full of dynamics and tension they did a great job producing this record too it sounds amazing with all that's going on and the panning Mm -hmm. it's i don't like the term a headphone record i hate that but uh, Mm -hmm. i would recommend listening to this with headphones you and i were texting a little bit back and forth this week and you referred to roger as a genius and it is so true yeah this is just a monumental track like greg ginn must have shit himself when he heard this never mind the fact that you know now he's got two-thirds of Mission of Burma on his, on his label. On his label, I know, right? Yeah. This track's just amazing. Yeah. Another amazing track is the next one, The Quarry. Uh, a mood piece, as Roger calls it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a beautiful song, especially with the context he gives in the interview about his, his mom's passing. Probably the most straightforward, at least uh, you know, as far as experimental songs go on the album. Yeah, you know those he has these high kind of soaring vocal parts in it. So it's funny you mentioned butthole surfers earlier. I wrote down Bono slash Gibby. Uh, (laughs) That's what those vocals kind of reminded me of. And you, I mean, I don't know if you put Bono and Gibby in a, in a blender, maybe you get Roger, but I love this track. Yeah, me too. The next one is Renegades. The story he tells about the nuns and the Gregorian chant is just hilarious. And you can totally hear it clear as day. If you listen for it in the song, um, speaking of butthole surfers, this has some of their trick bag in it with the modulation, um, plus that Neubotten metal clanging again, under it all is just a top notch song. Like obviously Roger was, is a, you know, an amazing songwriter. Yeah. Interesting too. This is uh, a track that mentions fish. I don't know if that harkens back to his childhood looking for fish with his dad. Oh yeah, maybe. Uh, And then the last track, Voluptuous Airlines. I think in the interview he calls this his favorite piece. Some serious E-sharp carbon 
Fibonacci series vibes again for me. <laughs> and yeah. also, also when he starts singing, it's very public image, uh, flowers of romance era mm-hmm. with all the percussion on that record, uh, which is an album I just love. So, you know, I, I like this record for that reason alone or this song. Yeah. Just think about all those bands that we've mentioned that again, it's not that this music is derivative. It stands on its own, but that it reminds us of industrial bands, uh, butthole surfers, public image. It's a real shame that, you know, this record, I don't think is as well known as those others. And uh, hopefully people go and check it out on Bandcamp. Yeah. He also opened for like Swans, which would have been a perfect pairing. Agreed. Yeah. And he was also, I think, accepted and celebrated in avant-garde circles, like playing lots of art institutes and places like the Knitting Factory uh, with art rock and experimental artists like Laurie Anderson. To be perfectly honest, Ryan, I had not heard this this record prior to this week, and, and what a treat. It just goes to show I'm as guilty as the next person, uh, as you know what I'm what I mean by that is like I love Mission to Burma, I have all their records. But I don't necessarily know the solo careers of of the artists. So huge oversight on my part. We've been talking these last few weeks about SST phase three or whatever, and people saying that everyone went to shit during this era. Um, already a total highlight for me. Yeah. I would say Roger's work of the three from Burma is the one I know the least. That's in part because there's the most, I think. But I don't think I really have went much more deeply than like, I mean, I had, you know, I picked up Sproat and Lair over the years. Um, I've gotten re-engaged on Trinary System and some of the other SST records, Wham On. But this one is one that I haven't listened to for a long time. So I've heard it before, but I it's it's funny, right? Like it's like some of these recent records that we have are covering on the show like i heard it years ago but i've got way different years for it now way different years for it yeah i just love when we get to these unsung gems in the catalog yeah roger sent me some some reviews and stuff a lot of this is of live shows but it kind of gives and it's pre pre win instantly but it gives an idea of what he was doing and how people were writing about it so i'm going to read a few of these here's from the boston globe april 86 by Jim Sullivan. And this is a review of Maximum Electric Piano in concert at the Boston Film Video Foundation. George Winston, he's not. If by some chance Roger Miller did come up with a bucolic New Age melody, and actually he does sometimes, he'd invariably pile layers of throbbing fuzzed dissonance upon it. The intent, it seems, is not to negate the pretty melody per se, but to explore its possibilities within a careening, dangerous, punk rock avant-garde framework. Later on he goes, Playfully psychotic pianist, possesses one of the keenest avant-garde rock sensibilities in town. Igor Stravinsky meets Brian Eno and Neubotten. Miller admits with characteristic cheer that some of his music can be brutally inaccessible. (laughs) But... Here's again later on. But Miller's fascinated by polyrhythms, texture, and complexity. He uses the digital delay to recycle a melody or a bass line and then warp it as he's veering off onto another tangent, another cycle. The effect is a multi-layered barrage of sound. 
Always twiddling one dial or another, Miller is a man in constant motion, a one-man symphony. It's also less inaccessible than you might think. Plug into Miller's off-kilter and not unhumorous sensibility, and it's often enthralling, an unlikely but enjoyable blend of calming ambience and caterwauling aggression. And here's another piece from um, a newspaper or something in Atlanta, Georgia from 1988. And this is by Doug DeLoach, and it's called Visionary Virtuoso Roger Miller is Breaking New Ground. That's the title. A couple of years ago, Miller decided to go it alone, carting his Yamaha into clubs that don't normally feature solo piano recitals and opening for bands like Husker Du that aren't exactly known for drawing an avant-garde crowd. Uh, again, he gets compared to Neubot in here. Uh, there's a definitely a rough metal-on-metal metal edge to the work. The songs are real songs, though, not just vehicles for noisemaking. He gets compared to Hendrix and Stockhausen, um, John Zorn. So that's kind of how people were talking about it back then. Here's from uh, one from Craig Lee, March of 88 in LA Weekly. The Rockers Report. A 21st century mind trapped in a 20th century body. An imagination on fast forward. Miller's white light, white heat 88s were like a cross between John Cale, Jimi Hendrix, and John Cage. Sheet metal textural blasts suggest the kind of new age that could provide a crash course in sonic reality for something like The Wave. Singing's not so bad either. The man's obviously some manic, crazy genius. Uh, Jim Sullivan from the Boston Globe. A man in constant motion, a one-man symphony, possesses one of the keenest avant-garde rock sensibilities in town. The cover art, Ryan, is a test pattern. Um, the first mm. image you see on his website, which, like he says, he still uses as kind of the logo for his transmuting the prosaic art installations. And you reference, you know, that you can kill some time on his website. You can take a virtual tour of the of one of his installations, like in a gallery. It's cool. I mean, it's it's kind of an iconic image for Roger Miller, almost too. Same with that Cyclops yeah. image. Yeah, for sure. When you see pictures of him performing live, he had a, that that photo of the Cyclops image kind of taped up onto his piano. No dead wax on this vinyl copy, though. Unfortunately, just the uh, the test pattern image on both of the LP labels, which totally works. Does the LP have the Cyclops photo on it? The the back of the jacket does. Yeah. Yeah. Not on the actual vinyl labels, but it's on the uh, the outer sleeve. You can see it underneath the uh, the lyrics and credits that are printed on the back. Hmm. Yeah, it features more prominently on the CD, I think. Mine is a cutout, as are most of my Sproton, Miller, Steve Stain <laughs> releases <laughs> that I've picked up over the years. They're all cutouts. All right, let's do the ballot result. Ballot result. So not a stinker on this record. Like every track is awesome. Like, I don't know. It, I definitely have some faves though. And you mentioned similar ones, but for me, it would be run water, run water, probably the promised land. I really like the quarry. Um, it gave me the, the hair standing up on my arms a few times. Um, those would probably be my top three, but all of them are good. Yeah. Those were mine and calling the animals also. I really liked, but yeah, mm. e every song on here is, is 
amazing. But for me, uh, it's got to be Run Water, Run Water, or The Promised Land. Either of those are as good as anything we've heard in the last 242 episodes. Yeah. Well, let's do Run Water, Run Water, you know, to carry our tradition of the opening track. Yeah. <laughs> for for many of them, not all, but many of them. Yeah. Well, you know, considering SST's spotty record as far as what songs they chose to release as singles, in my opinion, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, and this is probably more credit to the artist than to SST, but often the, the first song was the right one. Mm-hmm. All right. Hey, Ryan, thanks to Roger for being on the show. Super awesome having him on. Wouldn't yeah. have, like a lot of these episodes, I don't think we would have gotten the full picture of this definitely without without his input. So, Yeah, great history. And can't wait to get into more Roger records as we you know follow the rest of the story of SST right to the end. Can't wait. It's going to be like, I'm going to, I'm going to really anticipate the Roger records when they come up. Big time, man. Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brant, we are going back to one of our all-time faves. It's SST 244, the Dinosaur Jr., Just Like Heaven EP. Can't wait. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at MoJackPod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is MoJackPod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.